You may wish to adjust the dial you're currently tuned into. The wrong station. A couple years ago, I was working events, and they booked me for an overnight up past Bancroft. You know, up in the woods around there. Can't remember what the event was supposed to be, but it was something to do with a professional association or... something. Well, anyway, morning of the event, me and Dan Arlotto jump in the car and we're about three hours getting up there. Hit Bancroft, hit Apsley. We're just going deeper and deeper into the woods. Dirt road and that. Tall pines on either side, and the road just winding and winding like a snake. You sure this is where we're supposed to be going? I ask. And Dan just points to the Google Maps, and he says, Yep, looks like it. Finally, the road bends down, and we're winding our way into a valley. Wooded hills rising above us on all sides. Dark place, even in the afternoon. But nothing there at all, until we pull up to a place where the road splits three ways, and there's just a shack just sitting there, windows dark in the midst of all those trees. We stop the car and roll down the windows, and it's silence. Just full silent, not a bird singing, not a breeze blowing, just the slow tick of the car cooling off. And Arlotto's phone says, too loud, you have arrived at your destination. Well, he and I look at each other, and he says, you want to be the one to get out of the car? And I look at him and say, hell no, you get out. And then he looks down at the wheel and says, I'm the one driving. And I say, good point, let's switch. And then we just sit in silence for a moment. Let me call the guy, Dan says at last. So he dials up the number and hits call. A faint phone ringing inside that shack. No one picks up. Suddenly I get a real bad feeling. Hey, let's get out of here, I say. Not a second thought. Dan just drops the phone and hits the gas and peels us right out of there. Back down to Bancroft, we try entering the address again. Phone takes us to a completely different place. Number they gave us leads to their phone, and they've got no record of any incoming calls. <laughs> well, I never quite knew what to make of that. This one time, I saw a dog, the camel's hump. Never quite knew what to make of that. Worked as a custodian at a couple places back in my early 20s. And one of them was as the weekend guy at this big church over in Midtown. Pretty easy job. Pretty simple. Lots of just sweeping and mopping. Setting up chairs and taking them down. Now, sometimes they had events, but usually I'd just be about the only person left in the building by mid-Sunday afternoon. 
Around then, I knew my rounds, locking all the doors as I went until I got back to the main front office by the main doors, where I'd sit until the last folks in the upstairs office filtered out. Then, come four, by which time it was usually getting dark in the winter, I'd do my rounds again, checking rooms, turning out lights, and double-checking all the doors. It was a big, quiet, eerie building. Lots of places to hide, I guess, and so I was always half-expecting someone to jump out at me on those dim afternoons. Never happened, but I was always on edge. One time, I was heading down through the darkened hallways in the basement, and I heard a noise up ahead. Someone rummaging in the basement who shouldn't have been there. Can't tell you how acidic the fear was when it hit my bloodstream. Well, I, uh, I stood there for a moment, trying to figure out what to do. Go back, pretend not to have heard them, and arm the alarm... Let security folks come and deal with them? But I couldn't bring myself to do that. One, because I'd think myself a coward. And two, because that basement kitchen was used for the food bank. So it was probably just some poor nobody trying to get a bite to eat. I knew this, but no matter how reasonably you can explain a mysterious noise in the dark, it doesn't mean your brain will listen. Anyway, I creep back to the office, grab the big mag light, and head back down the hall toward the rustling sound. Hello? I could hear the fear in my own voice. Then I round the corner to the kitchen. I- excuse me? There's a man there. Doesn't seem to be homeless. Just a normal-looking, middle-aged guy in a blue suit. He looks up at me. Says nothing. He's got one of those industrial rolls of plastic cling wrap held in both hands. A big, shiny strip of it leading up to his mouth. He's uh, feeding off of it. Hey, uh, sorry man, you can't be here right now. You gotta go. He slowly pulls his head back, tearing the plastic wrap, chews what he's got in his mouth already, then swallows. Can I take the wrap? He says. Well, fuck if I'm gonna argue with him. Sure, man, whatever, just, you know, just head out. And with no muss or argument, he shrugs his shoulders and wanders out through the other kitchen door, through the little hall there, and then out the side door. I lock it behind him, and he's already gone by the time I check outside the window. When I poked my head back into the kitchen, I noticed another big, bare cardboard tube lying on the ground. Pick clean. Well, I... uh, I never quite knew what to make of that. Buddy of mine tends bar at some pretty terrible places. And he'll be the first to admit it. He has no idea what he's doing. Can't pour a pint without all foam, and a gin and tonic maxes out his mixological knowledge. Now, I used to work for a brewery, so one time I'm drinking at the bar he works, and he asks me, Hey, can you take a look at this one tap of ours? It's just pouring foam. I say, I'll do it for a drink on the house. Deal. Well, I come behind the bar and pour some beer. It's all coming out foam, but I take a sip and it feels cold enough which is usually the first problem. Warm beer foams. So I think beer's cold, not a busted glycol deck. Then I think maybe the pour looked a little funny, so I run the faucet some more and... Yup, beer's flowing out in a sort of spiral, instead of pouring straight. Interesting. You got a draft wrench? I ask. I don't know what that is. Buddy's already sitting in the corner on his phone, rotting his brain with TikToks. No wonder he doesn't know anything. 
well, it's like a wrench with like a little thing like this on the other end, so you can get into these little holes on the faucet so you can unscrew it. Oh. Uh. Maybe check the drawer? So I check the little drawer underneath the cache, and will wonders never cease, there is actually a draft wrench in there. So I head downstairs, untap the keg, head back upstairs and unscrew the faucet. Bit of gunk growing inside, but less than I might have expected. I unscrew the bonnet and pull out the lever, shake out the piston, and they're all looking reasonably clean. Not clean enough to drink out of, obviously. The thing smells like vinegar and rancid butter, but there's no big enough chunks of stuff growing in there to cause the vortex effect. So I rinse the lever and piston in hot water and set them aside. Then I hold the actual body of the faucet up to the light. What? The fuck? Hey, you got a set of tweezers or something? He doesn't. Best thing he can come up with is a toothpick. So I set out some paper towel and spend a couple minutes fiddling with the toothpick. Something up there inside the faucet. I finally get it loose and it flops out onto the white paper, spreading a penumbra of moisture around it. The drowned body of a tiny man. Never knew what to make of that. Tell you something I saw at the High Park Zoo once, when I jumped the fence to wander around in there after closing. Walked up to the emu enclosure and there was a capybara in there. Just three-wayin' the hell out of it with a couple emus. And as I looked on in, I'll say it, revulsion, one of the emus caught me looking and told me, in between panting breaths, that we could just keep this all between us. No need to tell anyone about it. Now what the hell do you make of that? Buddy, you see some raw stuff if you ever go to an open mic night in a small town. Especially back in the day. One time, and I know that this will date me, but one time in the mid-90s, I went to see stand-up comedy in the basement of a pub called The Dog's Balls just outside of Hamilton. Now, as you can imagine, basement comedy at The Dog's Balls in Hamilton in the 90s was, uh, pretty blue. A lot of racist stuff, a lot of sexist stuff. Don't even get me started on the gay bashing. But it was a hot crowd, and they roared at every single punchline. Then, about three acts into the night, this guy gets up on stage, and he looks me right in the eyes, and he says to me, he says, At 8.46 and 9.03 a.m. on the morning of September 11th, 2001, planes will strike the World Trade Center in New York, claiming some 3,000 lives and launching a global war on terror. Then he just walked off to a huge applause break. People thought it was the funniest shit they'd ever heard in their lives. I don't even know if the guy was a comedian. That was his only joke. Anyway, never quite knew what to make of that. My childhood dentist got disbarred from the dentist association for trying to put kids' pulled teeth back into the mouths of fishes living in his waiting room aquarium. Wish I knew what to make of that. It was after midnight and I was still in my office. Couldn't pay the heating bill at home, see? Had to be where it was warm. I had my feet up on the desk, bottle of scotch in hand, stone asleep when she came through my door. I only awoke because the glass pane that said private eye rattled in the ancient casing. Not sure when it had come unglued. Probably sometime last century. She wore an oversized men's rain slicker. The cuffs nearly covered her hands, it was so big. As it was, I could only make out the fingertips of soft, white kid leather gloves like Greta Garbo might have worn. Her face was hidden in the shadow of a wide-brimmed fedora, which she skewed downwards. 
All I could see was the slightest suggestion of a pale, unblemished cheek and the slice of street light streaming through the dusty blinds. But the first thing I saw, before anything else, was her games. Perfect, elegant legs, like a duchess would have. Luscious and long, they ended in four-inch heels the color of lipstick on your collar. As they strutted heel-toe towards me, I knew these were games a man would die for. Or kill for. Games with a problem. You don't come to Lloyd Frank private eye unless you got a problem. But she hadn't said nothing yet. What's the deal? I said, picking my jaw up off the floor. You here to hire me or you're just like waking a fellow up? She was right in front of me now. She put one of those perfect legs up on my seat between my knees, giving me a full view right up to her thigh. I nudged her foot away with a bottle of scotch. Lloyd Frank knows when someone is trying to get a discount. All right, I said. I don't do business anonymously. I need a name. Nothing. Just another sultry leg up on my chair. All right, I thought, changing my mind. Maybe Lloyd Frank can get lucky just this once. Maybe this is one gift horse he doesn't have to look in the mouth. I stood and she melted into my arms when I embraced her. Her leg curled around mine like a fish hook around a gill. She'd gone angling and she'd caught something. Me. I bent low and kissed that perfect, pale cheek, feeling the rasp of my beard against her flesh. She tilted her head back. The hat fell to the floor. I pulled away to kiss her lips, but... There were no lips. Just more gams. Two more perfect, luscious, four-inch-heeled gams where her head should have been. Gams just as sultry and elegant, rubbing against each other in ecstasy. My eyes bulged and I shouted, Jeepers creepers, lady! The legs stiffened, both pairs, obviously hurt and offended. But I didn't care. I pushed the abomination back, and she reached out with both hands to steady herself on my desk. Only for her gloves to slide off, revealing two horrifically perfect feet attached to a pair of sickening, gorgeous ankles. She straightened herself and stood there. The pair of head legs observed me quietly, almost beseechingly. She was aching for my help. The rain slicker covered her entire torso, but I knew what I was dealing with. This lady, she was all games. And I knew right then, right there, that whatever her problems were, they were too big for Lloyd Frank, private eye. Chased her right out of there with a broom. <sighs> she never even gave me her name. What do you make of that, huh? I never really knew. Bought one of those orchids from the grocery store. You know the kind, right? They call them moth orchids. Phalaenopsis is the genus. Anyway, I got the only one that didn't have any open buds just yet. Figured the flowers would last longer. Then they started to bloom. And inside each bud was the drowned body of a tiny man. I never quite knew what to make of that. Wait, what? Some guy just told you a similar story? Huh. Well, now I really don't know what to make of that. This one time, I went on a date with this guy from one of the apps. It doesn't really matter which one. I can't even remember. Anyway, back then I was still lying on my profile about loving hiking, so we met up near the brickworks to hit a trail. So we're walking, talking. I'm not really feeling a spark. We don't vibe on any of the usual stuff, so... I ask him about his hobbies, 
And this guy lets it slip that he's actually a pickup artist. I know, I know. Huge red flag. But, since I've already written this date off as a loss, why not have some fun? Jokingly, I ask him if he's any good at it. And he turns to me, real serious, and he's like, Yeah. Yeah, I am. The trees had thinned out, and I could see the bright blue sky. Soaring high above us, three turkey vultures transcribed wide circles. I pointed to the birds, laughing. If you're that good, let's see you get a date from them. And he looked at me, square in the face, and nodded. Then he screwed up his eyes and faced the turkey vultures, and and he made a sort of screeching sound. After a second, the birds broke formation, and... Yeah, it worked. The motherfucker did it. I still have him on Facebook. He's been dating those turkey vultures for three years. They just got engaged. Seem really happy, actually. Anyway, I never really knew what to make of that. We were on the bridge, traveling near light speed on our way to the orbiting weapon system around Alpha Centauri, when we received a subspace distress call from a damaged ship. I ordered the call on screen, and saw a Lytherian pilot with only six eyes. <laughs> you see some wild stuff past Pluto. Don't rightly know what to make of that. A couple years back, I went to the gas station at midnight to buy one of those pre-packaged sushi meals. I know, not a good choice. But sometimes you're on a deadline and you gotta do what you gotta do. I must have been distracted when I grabbed it because when I got home, the black and white label didn't read Salmon and California Roll Combo. It read, Ghost Sashimi. That's all. Ghost Sashimi. There was no fish inside. Just... Thinly sliced, lightly shimmering pieces of translucent flesh next to a generous spoonful of pickled ginger and wasabi. I knew I shouldn't eat it, but I'd spent nine dollars on it. Can't let nine dollars go to waste. Yep. Didn't quite know what to make of that. So, the other winner, couple back, I was working as a guard in Melgorod Darkthirst's underground temple stronghold. Yeah, yeah, the, uh, collegianous heart of ruin. What a prick, huh? And it wasn't a great job, you know. Pretty boring, honestly. But what are you gonna do in ancient Anatolia? With my work experience, it was either guard or lackey. So do I want to stand around all day, or put on an easily voice and get whipped for shit that's not my fault? Anyway, though, one time, one time I'm standing there at my post... Kinda, you know, in the, in the guts of the temple. Not the entrance, not the inner sanctum. I'm standing there, and I notice the torch on the sconce next to me waver just the slightest bit. Feel a light breath on the back of my neck. And I turn around, and the biggest man I've ever seen is looming over me. Guy looks like a bronzed, oiled god. Flowing sable hair, abs you'd crack your lips on if you kissed them, and he's holding a sword as thick as my thigh. And I think to myself, fuck, that's it, I'm dead, good enough while it lasted. Except, he does not immediately, as I would expect, cleave me in twain. Instead, he holds up something between his finger and thumb, a little too smushed between his beef sausage digits for me to see. And he says, Rogar, sneak up on guard good. Now Rogar, attack. And he gingerly tosses the thing down. It's like a little carved piece of animal bone or ivory, like a, like a, 
What are they calling those newfangled things? Uh, clacky gambling rocks. Anyway, it rolls onto the ground and it settles on one of its faces. It's got a little dot on it. I don't really know what's going on, but he gets this real sour look on his face. Looks back up to me like he's going to do exactly what he said anyway. But then he sighs and grumbles. Gestures at me to take a few steps back. Thinks for a moment about how he's going to do what he's about to do. And then he nods to himself. All of a sudden he runs at me. I scream and half-shit myself, but right as he's closed the distance, he trips. Not really trips, though. He sort of tangles his own feet up together. Does a flip onto his back. The sword comes loose from his grip, spins three times in the air, then comes down perfectly and pierces his chest. Just glides into it like a bag of silk. And he's dead. Never knew what to make of that. Makes you think, though, huh? Was having dinner once, jazz place, nice joint, polite company. Or so I thought. Partway through the evening, this lady struts in. A real knockout, you know. Curves, hair, red dress, a head-turner. But I keep those thoughts to myself, you know. Civilized society and all that. Guy at the table next to mine, though, mutters a little wowzer to himself. Fella table down from him says, hubba hubba, a little louder. Gentlemen, we're in public, I think. But it gets worse. Somebody whistles. People are beating on their tables, hooting and hollering. One guy across the hall starts blowing steam from his ears. Another starts having palpitations so bad I can see the outline of his heart through his dinner jacket. One starts sprouting hair. His flesh twists and contorts with devil desire as his face elongates into a snout. His nails become claws, his teeth fangs. He becomes the Varwulf, an impossibility in this rational world. And he goes, Awooga! Craziest thing. Eight guys went to the hospital. I think the wolf guy died. Just a pity, just a shame. And you know... I really never quite knew what to make of that. So this one time... Uh, you know, I really don't remember how long ago it was now. Not important. This one time, I was at LockCon, the one and only convention for warlocks and witches, practitioners and practitioners, and I was in line at the breakfast buffet, and I went to grab the last blueberry muffin from the muffin tray. When I hear from behind me, Would you mind taking another? Blueberry is my favorite. Well, I turn around, and I see this Salem Sea Witch, and I think about it for a second. I'm a bit of a grumpus first thing, you know. Haven't had my coffee yet. And I say, tough cookie, sister. Early hag the blueberry snags. Yeah, not terrible for first thing in the morning. But anyway, big mistake, especially considering I am not a warlock and was just working in the artist alley. She cursed me right there on the spot, and it was a pretty bad one too, all said. The deal is pretty much this. Every now and then, a portal through time and reality is torn open, and I am sucked into it and flung into another life. And I awaken, if you will, not really understanding what's happened, but at the very least knowing who I, the new me, is, and what I do and what my job is. And life starts passing me by, sometimes for weeks, sometimes for months or years. Things just happen that I don't fully comprehend, or even comprehend the relative normality of where I am, and I feel like I can't connect with people because I don't know them, or whether I should know them, or whether it's right to know them. So I eschew deeper connections. It's all surface level. 
The furthest I ever get with people is conveying these anecdotes that I don't even seem to myself get, and it feels like I am living on the worst two extremes of existence, where I am constantly being bombarded with things and places I want to understand but cannot, and at the same time being faced with this endless, repeating drudgery in my personal life that repeats ad nauseum regardless of the capital L life I am in. And I wonder sometimes if it's all some allegory for the transience of our society, shiftlessly wandering through careers and places and states of being. But then I think, no, you just got decked with a really bad fucking curse, man. And see? Right on cue. Whenever I start to dawn on this realization, that's when I... This one time, a couple years back, I saw a dog with the teeth on its eyelids. Except, when I looked closer, that dog was also a ghost. And when I looked even closer, that dog was me. <laughs> Never quite knew what to make of that. The Wrong Station is made possible with the generous support of our listeners on Patreon. Patrons can listen to The Wrong Station ad-free, as well as get access to bonus episodes, discussions, and more. This week's episode, April Ghouls, I Never Quite Knew What to Make of That, was written by Alexander Saxton, Jacob Duarte Spiel, and Anthony Botello. Performed by Anthony Botello. Thank you to Jamie Blitz, Daniel Harrison, and Kyle Kim, and a very special thanks to Salem Sea Witch for helping us keep the lights, well, off. The Wrong Station is co-produced by Alexander Saxton, Anthony Botello, and Jacob Duarte Spiel, with music composed and performed on the piano by Elan Citrin, and arranged for the viola and performed by Viola Schmidt. You can follow The Wrong Station on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and email us at therongstation at gmail.com. And until next time, thank you for listening.